save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello. And welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. The podcast has been on an unexpected two-month sabbatical, but I'm pleased to announce that we're back with a terrific episode to close out 2021. Our guest today is Sean McBride, founder of DSM Strategic Communications and a longtime senior executive in the fast-moving consumer goods and trade association sectors. I've known Sean for a long time, and today we talked to him about how the McBrides and their forebearers came to settle in western Pennsylvania, how Sean himself migrated from there to Washington, D.C., and how he came to specialize in the food industry. Along the way, Sean describes how millennials and Gen Xers have changed the way both consumers and policymakers think about and regulate the food industry, and the implications for those of us who need to communicate effectively with those important stakeholders. We learn how Sean has helped his clients rebuild trust and credibility, and position themselves for success before, during, and ultimately once the COVID-19 pandemic comes to an end. And finally, Sean takes out his crystal ball and shares three trends that he thinks will define the food industry through the rest of the decade and beyond. Here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Where is your family from and how did they make their way to the United States? Sure. My family is predominantly Scotch-Irish. We don't know at what period the Scots emigrated to Ireland, but they settled in Donegal County, County Donegal in Northern Ireland. And best we can tell that happened uh, pre-Civil War in the 1850s, around the time of the Great Potato Famine in Ireland. We haven't done a proper search all the way back there. We've, We've taken it back some points and some of my family members have done the DNA testing. So we know that the family's predominantly Scotch, Irish, and English, a little bit of German thrown in there. And so they made their way over to the U.S. through Ellis Island, like so many millions of people, and made their way across New York, New Jersey, and went to Western Pennsylvania, where both sides of my family, obviously my mother's side and my father's side, settled down in a small town called New Brighton, Pennsylvania, and Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, which are on opposite sides of the Beaver River Mm -hmm. uh, near Pittsburgh. And that's where our family settled. And that's where my parents met. And then the rest is history. Well, then we have a tiny amount of similar blood coursing through our veins because I have a slight amount of German in me too. (laughs) But most of my ancestry goes the other direction in Europe, as you can imagine, from Eastern Europe, primarily from Hungary and Russia. I guess in the end, we're all all European of one type or another here on this podcast. We're going to fast forward quite a bit from the 1850s when your uh, families uh, made it over this way to America to uh, to you yourself. And uh, tell me a little bit about how you migrated into the food industry and then specifically uh, the communications aspect of it. 
both of those, both ending up sort of being a communication strategist and being in the food industry were a circuitous route. I attended Bethany College in Wheeling, West Virginia, and have a degree, an undergraduate degree in political science, and came to Washington from college and spent about you know, 10, 12, 14 years doing campaigns, politics, and government, mm. and uh, worked in administrations, president, uh, presidential campaigns, U.S. Senate campaigns, all the way on down to dog catcher, so they, <laughs> so we say in the business, and, and played many, many roles, obviously, you know, learning things along the way on how to organize field teams, how to do direct mail, how to raise money, uh, how to run uh, press and public relations shops within campaigns. And that was great fun. And then I worked for a political consulting firm that was in the private sector, but provided those services to political campaigns and not-for-profit organizations like hospitals and museums and other uh, uh, not-for-profit not groups like that. And fortuitously, one of my work colleagues uh, was friends with a gentleman who was running uh, what was known at the time as the National Soft Drink Association, which represented Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Dr. Pepper Group at the time, and then all of their bottling systems. And uh, this colleague approached me and said, I don't know if you're looking around, but my colleague is looking for a head of his communication shop at the National Soft Drink Association. And I said, I'd be happy to talk to him. And of course, I knew a lot about the soda pop business because I was a chief consumer of the product. Right. But uh, <laughs> other than that, I didn't know a ton. And, and, and probably at that time knew even less about what trade associations were. I knew of them. I had friends that worked for them, but I, I didn't have any experience in managing trade associations and the advocacy and uh, communications work that they do. And lo and behold, we did a few interviews and I must have fooled them and they hired me. And I was a director of communications there for five plus years. And that was a pivotal time for the industry because the late 80, uh, excuse me, the late 90s and early 2000s was the growing mounting evidence of America's obesity problem, particularly among children. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of uh, speculation and data being argued over uh, the role that carbonated soft drinks play in childhood and general adult, adult obesity. And my arrival there was right on cue because it was the first time that the industry had been seriously under assault for a public health problem. And my skill set worked, um, having come out of political campaigns and knowing how to do crisis management, knowing how to do crisis communications, knowing how to run a PR shop and sort of do that with the aggressive nature that you have in a political campaign uh, really fit with what they needed. And so I was able to uh, help guide them through and help plan how you deal with a public relations, ongoing public relations problem about how do you get across to policymakers, influencers, consumers, moms and dads, educators, that soft drinks can be a part of a healthy diet. That in itself is, a, is quite a challenge. And so you uh, eventually made your way, I know, to the Grocery Manufacturers Association, where, is, where I think that's where you were when we met oh so many years ago. But you are now and have been for quite some time now, I guess uh, almost eight years, uh, the founder of DSM Strategic Communications. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the work you do for clients there. Sure. Just before I get to that, yes, I made yep. a couple of stops there after leaving the the soda pop business, as they say, um, 
worked at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform and was head of communications there for their tort reform uh, project called the Institute for Legal Reform and then worked at the, as you mentioned, the Grocery Manufacturers Association, which is now known as the Consumer Brands Association for eight years. And when I left there, I had the title of Executive Vice President of Communications and Membership. And after serving in that role for eight years, uh, I wanted a new challenge and wanted to be entrepreneurial and wanted to work for myself and reap the profits of my own labor. So I started DSM Strategic Communications and we are a boutique public relations shop. We do full service. Uh, we're smaller. We work off of a contract labor model, but we can do um, anything that the clients need. We don't just do you know, press releases and things like that. We can do social media planning, project management, do everything that you can do in a, in a large firm. And that was eight years ago. We'll celebrate our eighth anniversary on in February of next year. Congratulations on that. And it is crisis uh, communications a, a part of what you do? It is. Our, our business is largely in food, nutrition, and agriculture. Mm-hmm. We serve companies, trade associations, foundations in that realm. But over the eight years, we've, we've picked up a, a more diverse client base. Right now, we're doing a fair amount of business in the patient advocacy space. So we work with groups that are advocating for families or children with food allergies, foundations that are working on an advocacy basis for rare diseases, foundation that is working on behalf of affordability and greater access and diversity in uh, healthcare and health insurance availability and affordability. So we've diversified the client base. And of course, in those categories, there are serious problems, just like there are in any other sector in the food space that we do. Things of a crisis nature are predominantly around something going wrong with your product. Mm -hmm. Um, And that usually means a food recall of some type. It could mean an adulteration of some type where a physical material gets into the food, uh, bits of plastic or, or other material that comes up and it leads to a food recall. And so uh, we do quite a bit of uh, food recall and product recall crisis communications in that aspect. I ask you to share uh, maybe an example of that. And, and when I say that from uh, sort of a soup to nuts point of view, so how do you prepare uh, for something like that happening? How do you implement a program when something like that occurs? And how do you measure your success and what kind of steps do clients tend to take when the crisis has waned in order to prevent it from happening again? Well, everybody asked me when my first crisis communications experience arose, and I go back into the late 80s when I was a young person working on a New Jersey assembly race campaign, and my candidate got arrested on election night. And I get a call when I'm starting to count voter returns. I get a call, and um, a family member said, hey, he's, he's, he's in jail. Uh, and, and, and so... How are we going to deal with this? And about 30 seconds behind that was the call from the local newspaper and the local TV station saying, I hear your candidate got arrested. Okay. So um, I was he caught trying to vote twice, at least? Well, he was, you know, <laughs> it was a minor infraction. He was electioneering too close to the voting. Oh, right. So he right. went past the line of usually 50 feet or whatever it is, 100 feet where they draw the line where you can't politic too close to the, the polling station. So it wasn't a major problem, but you know, the last thing you need when the polls are still open is to have stories out that your candidate got dragged off to jail. So we got his lawyer friend to bail him out. And I dealt with the media. And that was the first, you know, real sort of crisis thing I 
I had to deal with. Yeah. A baptism my... of fire. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, I mean, in, in, in near terms, um, we did a lot of crisis communications at the very beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, if you go back to that sort of mid-March of 2020 timeframe, mm-hmm. when we did the 14 days to slow the spread, which then became 45 days to slow the spread, which then became, you know, all the other aspects of that that we're still dealing with. If, we, if you go back to those days, it was uh, for the food industry, a very turbulent time. So we did some crisis communications counseling for the grocery retailers and also for the manufacturers and the trade groups that we represent who, who deal with uh, members in both of those uh, entities. And one of the principles that, that I emphasize in the book and in training and in working with clients when it comes to what is really, I, I consider risk communication to be a, a subfield of crisis communication. You know, it's a, it's a, and it's an important part of it. Um, but it's, um, and, and it really always comes back to trust. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But um, in, in dealing with crises like that, uh, how important is it to you? Um, and, and how often do you bring in what I would call, say, third party experts to uh, communicate on your behalf? That's a, that's a very important aspect of crisis communications in food, nutrition, and agriculture. Obviously, there are uh, uh, you know a lot of nutritionists, doctors, public health experts, epidemiologists who understand the data and in the right context beyond what a head of a trade association or a lobbyist or somebody inside of a company may be an expert, but maybe not the most credible person to speak to that subject matter. So those outside experts are, are very critical. Um, obviously, they need to be completely independent, they need to be unpaid, they need to be uncompensated, they need to be talking in their own voice, and they are very, you know, very valuable and very broadly used. With that being said, there's been a lot of um, work done over the years to build trust in spokespeople for the food industry. And, you know, who do I trust? Do I trust the CEO? Do I trust the spokesperson? Do I trust the third-party academician from Penn State or a, a Michigan or wherever you may be turning to for your third-party expert, because consumers are smart and in the middle of regular communications, let alone crisis communications, they they can sniff that out, right? Is this somebody that I can trust? Is it somebody who seems empathetic? Is it somebody who seems impartial? And if any of those tests fail, then that third-party expert can be rendered moot or even worse, turn out to be a bad idea. Right. Let's really dig into this a little bit, because as you saw, I sent you a few extra questions because right before we came online to do this interview, I was listening to a panel, um, Public Relations Society of America's ICON conference is going on now. It was going to be in person next week and they, or I'm sorry, the week after next, and they, because of the Delta variant, uh, decided to go virtual. So it's, uh, it is spread out over a while, almost the entire month of October. It was a fascinating uh, conversation amongst um, chief communications officers at some some of the largest companies in the world, including uh, Pfizer. I think if it worked in a virtual setting, she would have gotten a standing ovation. But one thing that, that, that somebody mentioned really stuck with me, and that is a, a meme that she's increasingly seeing that says, I trust the science, but not the scientist. And we know that generally from surveys that firms like Edelman does and Pew, that 
trust in institutions, U.S. institutions across the board is falling, whether it's the military or uh, government, it's going down. The one that seems to be going up is actually business leaders. And so I don't know if you've seen that trend, noticed that trend. Does that suggest that we may be entering a, uh, an era when, in fact, putting a CEO out in front to talk about uh, a food-related crisis might actually carry more credibility than putting out a scientist? Well, the, the, the food industry has been on an interesting journey over the last 20 years. As consumer preferences started to change, really for the first time in the post-World War II era, and, and focus by those consumers more on the quality of their food, clean eating, what are food additives, what am I eating, how is it affecting my nutrition, how is it affecting my health, and a lot more scrutiny put on the ingredient label, both by policymakers and consumers. So, you know, the trust in the food industry, if you, if you wanted to just arbitrarily pick the year 2000, was, was fairly good and, and fairly solid for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. You think of iconic brands, you think of the Campbell Soups and the General Mills and the Kellogg's and all the sort of wonderful foods that you and I grew up on and that people still eat today. But those brands spoke to quality. They spoke to uh, good food and a, a good brand and a name behind them in the event there was a recall. And so, uh, but then you started to see things change a little bit with with millennials and Gen X and others who were looking for cleaner food, uh, less additives, less sugar, less salt, less fat, better taste. So the 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 trust in the food industry really over time, those twenty years, did decline significantly, and trust in those brands declined in in many instances. Not every. Some of those iconic brands still remain steady. But we experienced in the food industry where I do most of my counseling, a decline in, in consumer trust of those brands and of specific foods uh, in general. So we have been using public relations strategies, obviously substance, the nature of the food supply has changed to, to meet those changes. There's less sugar, there's less salt, there's less fat, there's more whole grains. You know, the, the food supply today is completely different. So on the substance of it, the food industry changed its stripes. But along with that, the public relations and communications and marketing people have to march side by side with them. Part of my job, both in my internal jobs, as well as in counseling my clients, is to help them restore trust in their brands, restore trust in the foods that they eat. And that's not an easy thing to do. It doesn't take place usually very quickly. It's a long haul. You have to prove to consumers over a period of time that you're diligent, that you're staying focused, that you're improving your your products, and that you're communicating the improvements in those products. So we've had a bit of a head start before uh, COVID and sort of the current era that we're in here in the last few years of how do you communicate with consumers? And it's important to say that communicating with, it's not a one-way conversation. You know, TV ads don't do the trick anymore. It has to be a holistic approach and you have to have your two-way communication through social media. You have to allow for a conversation to take place and, and TV ads to promote products are, are fine as well. And going back to your point, third-party experts and third-party data is essential to proving that you've lived up to whatever your promise was. If you said you were going to reduce sodium, if you said you were going to reduce sugar, if you said you were going to increase whole grains, if you said you were going to have calorie control, then um, having others who can validate and verify that you've done what you said you were going to do 
is critically important. And going back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, those third parties need to be truly independent. They need to not be compensated. They need to be honest. They need to disclose any conflicts of interest. Uh, and of course, we all know that the more esteemed they are and more reputable they are in their field um, is helpful to helping you communicate you know, your messages as well. John, it's interesting. I think of you as a food guy, and I'm very glad to hear that your firm has been able to branch out into some other areas. That's always good. Diversity of a client base is always helpful. But I stay in the in the food area sure. and ask, when it comes to food, what keeps your clients up at night? Is it is it recall? Is it some sort of tampering of some kind? What worries them most? What worries you most on behalf of your clients? Like most industry sectors, that, that question changes in sort of two and three year increments. You know, a few years back, I would have said, well, what's really bothering the C-suite at food and nutrition companies is achieving sustainable growth and, and not sustainability, but, but ongoing gro- growth in their brands and in their companies that they can predict because there was a, a, a period here a few years back pre-COVID where companies were losing market share for the first time since World War II. Mm-hmm. And, and some of these brands, iconic brands, they're, if they're losing two and three and 4% year over year over year, that's a pretty big hit to your bottom line. And of course, affects your operations and your shareholders and everything else. So that was one thing that was keeping them up for quite a while. And we went through a period where food recalls were coming fast and furious. Not only were they coming fast and furious, but the government was doing a better job of tracking them and uh, working with you to mitigate them. So we went through a phase and, and those two things still exist all the time. But of course, now um, it's COVID all the time. And so what is keeping uh, you know, my clients and, and the C-suite and their trade associations up at night really is this notion of the supply chain crunch mm-hmm. that we as consumers are all experiencing, whether it's in retail, when you go to a big box store whether it's when you go to the grocery store and the product that you need to bake or cook or feed your family may not be there, or you have to pick a more expensive option than you would like because it's the only one left on the shelf. So really right now, the focus is on the supply chain problems that we're facing. And you know, immediately going back to what we talked about earlier in the discussion, the immediate calls that we got sort of on a crisis basis when the pandemic hit and we all went into quarantine were around two things. Uh, well, maybe three things. One, uh, the workers in, in the retail and manufacturing plants were saying, you know, stores and plants were saying, am I safe? What are you doing to keep me safe? How am I not going to get COVID and have to get sick and maybe worse? The other one was the consumers saying, what are you doing to protect me? Right. I have to go to the grocery store. I'm 75 years old. What are you going to do uh, to help me and protect me when I go to get my groceries? And then third, it was the relative demand pool of the hoarding that we experienced in those first few months with toilet paper, with animal protein, with some other key categories. And those were those are all real questions of the supply chain, um, in part. Obviously, there, there's the COVID uh, health piece of it, but, but the demand pool and those pressures were real and presented a real crisis. Well, what we saw over time was the supply chain rebounded really quickly, self-corrected, and in the summer and fall of 2020, yes, there were maybe one or two or three things you might be have shortages of for a few days, but the supply chain showed a lot of resiliency initially. Then we've moved into more of a systemic problem uh, that's happening globally, where workers in the fields, uh, both domestically but principally overseas, where, where these food ingredients and food products are grown, 
then you know your shortage of workers and to harvest and you have the supply chain problem with workers uh, to uh, produce the food and you have problems with uh, dock workers being available to load and unload containers and ships at the ports and then you have in some countries problems with having enough workers to drive the trucks and things mm -hmm. to get the food to where it goes so so this has shifted into a new uh, era of supply chain worry in 2021 and ongoing, which is how are we going to deal with what the new normal is with all these disruptions at various points globally to get my product uh, to consumers. And that's also true in, in grocery retail. So all of us who are consumers go to the store and again, you walk down the aisle with your shopping list and you may find that a certain product that you need canned a certain fresh product, a certain meat protein, uh, animal protein, uh, something that you really need is not there or that the, the choices are limited and finding ways to, to mitigate that globally is really what is the, the ongoing problem and what one could say crisis right now in that industry. I had listed that as a question because of course it's a, it's a big issue. You can't pick up a newspaper, which I still do every day uh, and not read a story about the supply glut and ships offshore waiting to unload. And if you want to have Christmas presents, you better have ordered them three weeks ago. Christmas presents are one thing. Food is an entirely different one. That's obviously a challenge. It's going to be ongoing for quite some time. What is the, uh, the food industry writ large doing to, uh, to try to alleviate some of those uh, bottlenecks? Well, it's really interesting. There's, a, there's a, a framework in place that's become very helpful, and that is the way that these uh, food manufacturers and, and growers are tracing their supply chain. And some of this work is very similar to what we saw in food safety with the Food Safety Modernization Act passed in Congress in 2010. That required a food manufacturer to quote, know your supply chain. You couldn't just sort of write it off and say, well, when something arrives at the dock in Los Angeles, I take it, but I don't really know where it came from. I don't know how they grew it. I don't know what their food safety practices were. And so, what, you know, for instance, blockchain, is a very important piece of the food safety traceability that companies have been putting into place over the last decade so that you can mm -hmm. literally know down to the field, the individual worker uh, in, in Vietnam who may have harvested that particular ingredient, a farm where it may have been grown, a factory where it may have been produced before it reached our shores and was shipped to the, the domestic processing facility. And those practices are what are being used right now to forensically go back and understand where the supply chain is breaking down. It's allowing food manufacturers uh, and their collaborative supply chain, the grower, the shipper, the processor, to find out where the problem is. Is it a, is it a shortage of shipping containers? Well, okay, what's the strategy to overcome that? Is it a shortage of workers in the field overseas? Okay, what can we do to put some people on the ground and find out, do they need more PPE? How do we get additional workers in place temporarily? Uh, whatever those strategies may be. So that, that sort of blockchain mentality and the technology that they have procured and cultivated during the last decade is proving helpful in finding out where those uh, problems are and to the best of the ability uh, to mitigate it. But you know, when, when the shipping containers are stacking up in China and Singapore and Vietnam and other places, and there are not enough of them to go around uh, or, they're, or they're being mounting in the US ports because they haven't been shipped back to a, a location empty to be refilled. 
some of those strategies are um, tough to come by. I did read over the weekend that uh, some uh, companies in the retail space are now chartering their own shipping vessels from overseas, mm -hmm. smaller ships with fewer containers uh, to be able to ship their units directly on behalf of the, the original manufacturer and to get those smaller ships into smaller ports. So instead of going into New York or Baltimore or Los Angeles, they're able to take those to places like Portland um, and Oakland and other places. Now that increases the cost you know, significantly of that product because you're, you're shipping smaller ships and fewer containers and on a per unit cost that, that has an impact on price, but it is allowing some of those uh, retailers to be able to stock their shelves to a better level than they thought they were gonna be. I'm always uh, astounded at the creativity of the uh, human mind and the ability of people to uh, to solve problems. And that's an excellent example of, of one that actually I had not heard or read about, but certainly makes perfect sense. If you're blocked this way, well, you you know, you, you run for daylight, right? You do what you need to do. But that does bring up an issue that I, I didn't include in the questions, but I would like to ask about. And that is, do you know food prices have been going up um, as have prices across the board, primarily for the same reason, because of uh, issues with the uh, supply chain. Do you see that as at a crisis level now? Do you see it becoming a crisis, something that your food clients may have to deal with in the relatively near future if supply situation sort of remains steady for a certain amount of time? Yes, I'm, I'm not sure it's a crisis, but I will say that for lower income families, it's a significant problem. If your animal protein is up 28% in some instances, or your eggs or your bread or your canned goods or whatever it may be, and, and all those inflationary um, points vary by sort of category, but there's no doubting that it costs you more to go procure the same market basket today than it did two years ago. So uh, I wouldn't call it a crisis, but but a significant problem for lower income Americans and, and, and something that really isn't sustainable over time. And you see, you know, when you see grocery prices and you see gas prices going up together, that usually spells trouble uh, for working Americans. And so it's a, it's a problem that I think the public and private sector both need to, to get under control. Now, the history of the food sector uh, and, and food companies, retailers and manufacturers alike, they, they tend to try to um, eat, no pun intended, as much price increase in inputs leading to inflation as they can. They tend mm -hmm. to uh, either uh, take on the extra, you know, reduce their margins, or in some cases, a box of cereal that is normally 14 ounces, they might start selling it at 12 ounces right. uh, to help maintain, you know, uh, prices, um, but with for a little bit less uh, product involved. So there's a lot of ways that you can manage that. Now, in some of these cases, when you start getting into six and 10 and 12 and 25% uh, input uh, cost increases, it's hard to hide and it's, it's hard to, to sort of mitigate that. And so that is getting passed on to consumers to a large degree, never something that the food industry likes to do, but in, and only when absolutely necessary, but it is you know getting done. I think it will begin to ebb like everything else in our society right now, as we begin to get a better handle on the pandemic, as we reduce cases and deaths from uh, coronavirus, we get more workers back into the plants, whether, whether, you're, whether your shortage is because people are ill 
or whether it's because your workforce is reluctant to go back to work because they're worried about the exposure to coronavirus. Once the coronavirus gets under better control, not only domestically, but overseas, and I've been reading a lot about uh, the vaccine manufacturers are really pumping out millions and millions of doses uh, and, and providing them free or being purchased by uh, countries overseas. And I think that will help. So I think mm -hmm. this will not happen quickly. It's not something where there's a magic wand. I think the government has only limited tools at its disposal between its fiscal and monetary policy to get a handle on food inflation. And I would expect it'll come down, but it will, it will track with all the other metrics that we're looking at related to the easing of the pandemic. Well, you use the phrase magic wand. I'm gonna, uh, as a last question for you, ask you to take out your crystal ball. And it may be that we just discussed what the near term future looks like for the food uh, world, but is there anything else on the horizon across the board? It doesn't even have to be communications related that, that we should be looking forward to as consumers, um, as in a society when it comes to food. Yes, I, I think there are three sort of trends or, or things that we will be looking at in, in the future of food over the next, say, less than 36 months. The, the trend toward healthier products is continuing. And as I mentioned earlier in the discussion, that's been going on for you know, almost 20 years now, really. But the increased availability of healthy choices, reduced fat, reduced sugar, reduced sodium, whole grains, all those things that consumers really want. We all want as consumers, everybody wants to eat healthy. So that's going to continue. I also believe that you will see the, the food industry continue to get more and more sustainable. The progress that these uh, companies have made in the last five to 10 years on sustainability has been remarkable. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's because we all want a more sustainable planet, but it's also because food industries are very close to consumers. They sell products to hundreds of millions of consumers around the globe every day, and they are consumer sensitive. And more and more consumers want products that are made responsibly, that are made sustainably. And so the supply chain uh, and the food supply have gotten more sustainable along the way. And I, I think the progress that's been made there is, is really fantastic. And third, the use of technology to improve food supply and diminish food insecurity is something that I'm, I'm really excited about. And you look at mm -hmm. things like uh, bioengineered foods, which is synonymous with GMO. That's the term a lot of consumers are familiar with, genetically modified organisms. Mm -hmm. And the controversy around that technology is easing through a lot of hard work by science, the scientists and food companies to uh, communicate the benefits and safety of that technology to consumers. So consumers are feeling better about it. And new technology is coming online as well in the form of CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, gene editing technology, which is sort of the next generation uh, genetic uh, technique that food companies and that growers are looking at using to increase yield, protect crops from pests, from drought, from some of the other things that are so devastating and impact food insecurity at home, certainly, but even more in developing nations. And so I think the technology that's coming online that uh, will also allow for more sustainable production of food. A, an increased progress toward sustainable food and a progress toward healthier food. So these things were already in motion, but to some degree, they've been slowed down to one degree or another with the focus on the pandemic. 
Uh, so I'm excited about when we get to the turning point where the pandemic eases and some of these things that, that show a bright future for our, our food supply globally will we'll pick up again in earnest and make those great strides toward you know, the food supply that I think all of us want. I was going to close the interview here, but you brought up something that I'd like to ask about right before I, I left. I plenty of time. <laughs> right, well, good. Uh, it's a quick question, but right, right before I left PCG, we were doing some work on gene editing. We were uh, working with, um, I guess the contract was with the American Soybean Association, but there were four or five different um, associations that were beginning the process of getting a sense of how the consumers would react to CRISPR and and this new technology. And I think it's fair to say avoid, if they could, some of the negativity that surrounds and I think still surrounds GMOs as a concept. You know, how do we avoid the term frankenfood and, you know, all of that that went on during that period of time? We didn't identify any magic bullets. We were working in three different markets around the world to get a sense uh, in, in those places how, what the reaction would be to gene editing and also beginning to understand how to explain it, um, why it was different from GMOs, or completely different uh, scientific technique, why it was safe and so forth. Um, do you think the, maybe I'll ask it this way, do you think the industry can avoid some of the pitfalls that it ran into with GMOs? Uh, and if so, um, what, what would be your advice to help do so? Well, you know, the, the, the past is always filled with clues and mm -hmm. with the GMO bioengineered food ingredient debate that raged for years. Uh, you know, the worm started to turn on that when it was actually, we talked about this earlier in the discussion, Leonard, third parties, incredible mm -hmm. third parties came forward. Um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of scientists signing open letters saying this technology is proven, this technology is safe, this technology has benefits, and I, I can vouch for them. And those were academic, uh, academicians and, and you know, organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and others who said this technology is safe, it has benefits. And if we don't use it to help feed the world, particularly in developing uh, countries and economies, we're crazy. And so after that message was pushed out time and time and time again, you started to see a slow change in attitude first among influencers and then eventually among consumers. And I think that's the model to some degree with CRISPR. So what we've learned is you need to talk about the safety, you need to talk about the benefits from the very outset, and you need credible third parties that people know and people trust. And if that message stays repeated, and of course is coupled with no incidences or no negative studies or problems along the way, then it, it should pave the way for uh, better and, and sooner consumer trust of the CRISPR technology as an extension of gene editing, excuse me, as an extension of genetically modified organisms. They're the same, but they're different. They're under the band of genetic uh, technology, but, uh, but there's, you know, we won't go into that today, but obviously they're, they're, they're different, but they're similar enough that the, the messaging and the consumer response, we hope, will be similar given the lessons that were learned from the, the first go around on GMOs. As we had discussions amongst this group when we were working with them, I just cringed at the phrase gene editing. I just, I just worried about the reaction an average consumer would have to 
being told that oh this this food has been its genes have been edited um it, we know that that's why that's done we know that it as you said, results in higher yield, a greater resistance to pests, um, less use of um, uh, uh, fertilizer, less use of pesticides. Uh, it generally, it's a good thing all the way across the board, but I just worried about the reaction to that phrase. I never did come up with anything that was better. I don't think, I, I don't know if anybody will, but you know, sometimes in those cases, the words themselves matter. They do. Nomenclature is important. Do know on, on a broad note, uh, taking a step back from gene editing for a second, is too often clients feel that if they do a change of nomenclature, their problem is solved. Mm. And, you know, probably in your experience with your clients as well, nomenclature only gets you so far. And sometimes it doesn't get you very far if the crisis or the problem is, is big enough. So, um, Syntax and nomenclature are important, but only part of a larger effort to do a true campaign or a crisis communications effort. Very true. Well, Sean, I think that's a, that's a good place to end. Um, I want to uh, thank you again for uh, taking the time to join me. Before we close out, though, I do want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your company and, and maybe uh, most important, anyone who may be interested in your services, what's the best way to get a hold of you? As I mentioned earlier, we do, we do all sorts of full service public relations type stuff. Uh, but I would say that if there's one thing that we excel at and our clients turn to us the most for is advocacy communications. If you have a, uh, an issue in the regulatory realm in Washington, if you have, uh, whether you're trying to support or oppose a regulation coming from a federal agency, if you have a legislative issue on the Hill that you're trying to support or oppose legislation on Capitol Hill that affects your company, affects your organization and how they do business, uh, and you need uh, support, not well, support for the actual uh, shoe leather lobbyists, as we say, that go and make the visits with the these days mostly virtual visits with the policymakers themselves. But you need to uh, support uh, those efforts with media relations, social media, uh, new websites, new messaging, uh, third party uh, endorsers, as we've discussed today. That's one of the things we really excel at, which I personally enjoy doing. It's reminiscent of my days running political campaigns. So, um, you know, if, if you're in the market for those type of things, whether you're in food, nutrition, agriculture, uh, foundations, uh, patient advocacy realm, information technology, supply chain, that's really our sweet spot. And, uh, you know, we, we love doing that kind of work and I'm happy to chat. One of our business models is I give a lot of free advice. If you got problems, if you have questions, you know, lots of lots of help, lots of best guesses about how to help you out. And if that leads to business, that's great. But but I always enjoy the intellectual part of talking to people about what they need and what their problems may be. Well, that's terrific. And we will include a, a link to your website in the show notes. So uh, anybody who uh, tunes in and, and wants to find you, they'll be able to find you there. Sounds so, great. Leonard, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the discussion. I really appreciate it. And, and take care. Sounds good. Stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this final new episode of 2021 and for patronizing the podcast for the last 18 months. 
We'll be back with all new episodes soon after the first of the year. If you have any thoughts or ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please send an email to WTSWTGT at gmail.com, and please follow us on Twitter at hashtag WTSWTGT. A big thank you, as always, to Jim Cirillo of JimmyMGroup.com for our original music, and to Rachel Greenberger for our original art. Have a very happy new year, and until next time, always be positive. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.